0: Hello and welcome to the ninth and final class on the Silmarillion. Today we discuss Amandil's attempted intervention on the Numenorian's behalf and Iluvatar's response to the sins of Numenor, followed by a few notes about the Rings of Power and the Third Age. Okay, so we had gotten to or near uh, the actual uh, fall of Numenor uh, in class last time, um, what we were talking about at the uh, what we were talking about at the very end of class was the good guys reactions to things and how what what we can you know how they all understand sort of the terms of what's going on it, it is most clear um you know in case we might get distracted by some of the things that those who are falling are talking about in their own minds they are never really you know it, Our on, and the other people don't ever say, like, hey, so let's go, uh, you know, start an armed uprising against God today. I mean, that's just not how they conceptualize what they're doing. Um, But you can see in the reaction of the people who are outside that rebellion that they understand the real significance of what's going on. Uh, Most notably, in the passage I mentioned at the end of class last time, in which many of you have uh, aptly pointed to in your papers, um, the moment when... Manwe responds to it, recognizing that this is not about him, even though there's a lot of emphasis among the Numenorians of you know, complaining against the Valar and the restrictions of the Valar and the ban of the Valar. And it seems, therefore, to be a rebellion against them. But Manwe understands, ultimately, this is not about me. This is not about my authority. And there are times when we are reminded just by the word choice there of that of that dynamic. That is, they are rebelling not against just the powers of Arda, but uh, a phrase that is used in the story, the appointed powers of Arda. Um, it is only the Valar as Iluvatar's delegates that, uh, that, that you know, the Numenorians are rebelling against them. And so Manwe says, this, this, dealing with this is kind of, you know, beyond my pay grade, right? I mean, I, I don't, it's not, it's, it's not about me. It's not up to me. It's not that he couldn't handle it. Uh, now, the Numenorians are very strong. Remember, when they showed up, when ar fleet shows up in Middle-earth, Sauron just capitulates. He doesn't even try to fight them um, because they would be able to overcome him easily. So that's not to say that when the Numenorians land in Valinor, it's not going to be a fight. The, the, the fight between the Numenorians and the, and, and the Valar would not have been a fight between finite versus infinite. Um, it would have been very strong finite versus even stronger, but finite. Um, and there certainly would have been casualties. But Manway says, okay, no, and what ends up happening is the, fight, the confrontation between finite and infinite. And, of course, that uh, ends up getting settled a lot more easily. Um, now, the other place that we can see, apart from Manway's reaction, um, that is, the, the other sort of external assessment we get of the new Minorians. Is from Amandil, uh, Elendil's dad. And again, it's pretty clear that he understands what's at stake in this. Remember, what does his son Elendil say to him when he says, when he explains his plan? He's like, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna break the band of the Valar, and I'm gonna sail into the West, and I'm gonna, you know, both tell, you know, Manway et al. what's happening here. And also, but that's not just what he's doing, right? I mean, he's not just going to rat them out. What's his What's his purpose? Amandil's purpose. How does he conceive of what he's doing? Tony?
1: He's, he's trying to save the annoying. He's not trying to get punished. I don't know if he actually knows what's going to happen, but he knows that it's going to be
0: bad. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty sure that... Uh, the Numenorian sailing in arms to Valinor is... is, is th- th- there are going to be negative consequences to this. You know, he, he doesn't necessarily envision any more than Sauron envisions exactly what's going to happen. Remember, Sauron was planning on ar feet fleet, not just his feet, his fleet getting, getting, getting pounded uh, by the Valor, but he fails to anticipate the full extent of what actually happens. Um, so Yes, exactly. He... He recognizes what's going to happen, and he sees himself explicitly in the role of Arondel. Right? I'm going to try to do, for the sake of the faithful among the, the Numenorians, what Arondel did for the faithful in Beleriand at the end of the First Age. I'm going to go, you know, he says it's not that I think he explicitly recognizes. Manwë doesn't need the tip from me about what's going on here. You know, it, it's it's not information that I'm going to bring to the Valar that's going to be useful to them. But I am going to appeal in the way that. ARENDO appealed, and maybe they will have mercy as they had mercy uh, at the end of the first stage with the War of Wrath. Um, now, of course, does that work out? It's tricky. On the one hand, no. I mean, we have no reference. We, we get no story. We get no Amandil on the coast of Valinor and Aeon Way making a, a, a dramatic, you know... The, radiant in the morning and the, the longed for that cometh that unaware. We don't get any of that, right? Um, so far as we know, he never makes it to Valinor um, and he's never heard from again. And there's no further reference to him. But, mercy is taken on the faithful. Right, Louise? Yeah, well,
1: I was going to say because his son and the rest of like, his son's followers were saved like, even though it wasn't done in a, like, a really gentle way. They were still saved which kind of suggests
0: that he was Yeah, and, and the story emphasizes what a near thing it was. I mean, it's not just that the island of, of, of Numenor sinks beneath the, the waves. I mean, this huge gulf opens up and the sea rushes into it, and this huge storm kicks up. And as it happens, because of where they happen to be, you know, on the coast of Numenor they were sheltered from this. They were sheltered from the first pull of the sea to the Gulf and from the first force of the wind, which even the force of the storm that is unleashed upon Numenor, is, the storm of wind and rain, uh, blew Alendó and his ships uh, <laughs> fast and with violence to Middle-earth and to safety, ultimately, and all of them saved. None of those ships perished. So, you know, was Amandil's, Quest to success? No, not exactly. But uh, in all, in another sense, he got what he wanted. It's, it's, it is almost as if the Valar did sort of credit him for the spirit of what he was trying to do. Jordan, I always took it that he was acting
1: hubris, and that it's the fact that the Louboutin is inclined to waste what of what. I mean, that he's going to he's going to help you because he's the good he's a good guy, and he's not gonna. People who have been fully loyal to him, who, and Amandel was acting a hubris. And in two seventy six, it says two seventy six, men could not, be a second time, be saved by any such embassy, mm-hmm. for the treason of There was no easy absolving. Right. And I think the reason that Amandel got what he wanted, even, was because the people who were absolved, who, who there was no absolving done
0: at all. People didn't need to be absolved to survive, and those who didn't need to be absolved were not. They were just killed. Right. But there, it's. It's more than just the individual people, you know, the good people and the bad people. Um, Numenor itself could not be spared. Um, and the whole... The whole Numenorean ex- experiment, if experiment it were to be called, is going to be called... I mean, Numenor is going to sink beneath the sea and we're done here. There will be a remnant preserved. But Numenor itself, there's not going to be any successful intercession for Numenor and the Numenorians. Um... That's not going to happen. That's not gonna, it's not going to happen successfully, though a remnant will be spared and will then go on uh, and will be blessed to do, to do other things. Um, there is potential... I mean, I can see what you mean, though, about a potential element of hubris in Amonville's action, and he kind of recognizes that, but it's also an explicit act of self-sacrifice on his part. That is, he says, I will break the ban and I will take the punishment of that upon myself i 'm going to run that I know that it 's wrong, but i 'm going to do that anyway, knowing that it 's the only way that I can try to petition for mercy, um, so you can say, well, he broke the ban i mean he 's the first one to break the ban. he breaks it before our on breaks it, but he did it for a really good reason uh, and, that is, and and and, rec- and taking responsibility not not in defiance but uh, in a sense, I mean, it seems counterintuitive to say that he broke the ban in a spirit of submission, but it is actually that's that, that's that's kind of a description of, of of how it happened. Also, remember the way that he describes this to Alendil. The other thing that Alendil is concerned about is he is you know Alendil says so um, you're going to betray the king then, and he says you know they've been accusing us the faithful of being traitors and spies, and and until now it's been false but now you're going to kind of do the thing that they're accusing us of doing. Um, Shouldn't we not do that? Shouldn't we stay, you know, not that, like, we should do everything that our affairs on asks them to do. Of course, they don't do that, but but he is still king. Um, Is it just, is it justifiable for us to break our allegiance to the king even in this way? And Amandil says an important thing, and this is, I think, the heart of where we can see what I was talking about, that sort of external assessment of what's really going on here and what's really at stake. Amandil says to Elendil, there is one loyalty from which, there is only one loyalty from which one cannot be absolved. At the end of the day, there is only one loyalty that is absolute and unbreakable, no matter what the conflict of interest which is what Uluvatar. to Iluvatar? Yes. Uh, and again, remember the explicit acts of worship and devotion to Iluvatar that are associated with Numenor. The Numenorians were more aware of this than any other culture that we see. Even the Elves deal more with the Valar than with Iluvatar himself. But the Numenorians did not. Amandil recognizes this. If our our our, our allegiance to the King, which although we very Strongly disagree with the king's policies. We still respect. If our allegiance to the king comes into direct conflict with our loyalty to Iluvatar, then we must break our allegiance to the king because there is only one loyalty that, from which you cannot be absolved. Um, and there, again, I think, Amandil shows pretty clearly this is what really matters. This is what's really going on here. Um, it's not even about... and He perceives it's not even about the Valor. It is primarily about about Iluvatar himself, and even his going to to appeal to the Valar, uh, he's doing because they're the appointed powers. Uh, that is appointed by Iluvatar. Um, now, I want to come back to what I said at the end of class last time. I would come back to, which is, how do we understand the smiting itself? And so far, I haven't finished reading all the papers yet, but so far, the one of the main trends that I've noticed is not quite enough discussion of this. I, 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 most of the time I would want to see more discussion of this. That is many of you in the framework of your papers are kind of taking for granted the act of, I keep calling it smiting because I don't want to use a word like vengeance because that has a weight that I'm not sure is fully appropriate here. And punishment. Yes. But anyway, the judgment of a um, most of you are kind of accepting that as a framework of the argument. Like, given that, you know, given the fact that Iluvatar comes down on these people like a ton of bricks, therefore, what can we... But without actually really thinking about what is the significance of what exactly Iluvatar... There are lots of things he could have done, right? That he didn't do. What are the specific details? What happens to the Numenorians as a consequence of, of their sin, as a consequence of their... Errors um, and what is interesting, what is significance about those things? Let's start with facts. What happens? What happens, Duncan? Uh,
1: Iluvatar, I believe crushes the entire place.
0: Yeah, the entire land of Numenor is taken beneath the sea, drops into the abyss. Uh, it's, it's a far more thoroughgoing thing than just sinking beneath the waves. It does sink beneath the waves, but all the, the waves sink too. I mean, it's it's dropped into the abyss. This is where Sauron's body goes, and why he is so discomfited by this afterwards. Right? Um, okay. So Numenor itself drops into the abyss, and that's not all.
1: Nick, uh, the king. And his men was landed are struck under a mountain and trapped there for the time.
0: Good, good. Our pharazon and his armies do not die. They are buried alive beneath a mountain which falls upon them, and they are held alive to await the final battle. Which foundation scholars should recall, should remind us of. Hmm? Ragnarok. I don't know. I, I, Bible, I'm thinking. Yes. Yes, it should. that should remind us of Ragnarok. But no, no, no. The, the, uh, the being trapped beneath the earth alive as punishment or presumption. It's like the opposite of it. But yeah, no, the, there's a specific Bible story where almost this exact same thing happens. Those of you who took the class are rusty on this. The Rebellion of Korah. This is in the Book of Numbers, for which there's really no excuse for you not to have read the Book of Numbers. But uh, um, and just as a sidelight, the Book of Numbers gets a raw deal, can I say. <laughs> Everyone is like, oh, the Book of Numbers, that's so boring. Like the first seven chapters are admittedly boring, as it just goes through like how many people are in the army and which tribes But people then assume that the whole book is like that. It's only the first seven chapters. Like some of the raciest stories of the entire Old Testament happen in the book of Numbers. Man, it's really awesome. Anyway, the rebellion of Korah. Uh, There's this faction of Israelites uh, under the leadership of Korah, who is uh, one of the tribe of Levi, which is like the priestly tribe. Of israel who comes to moses and says hey moses who made you be like a king over us Yeah, you're the one who always like goes straight to god and brings us the messages from god But hey, you know what we're all the chosen people around here All of us should be able to go to god anytime we want to and you're not special (laughs) And and moses Moses does exactly what manway does. He's like, all right. Tell you what Let's let god decide this tomorrow. You guys show up with your incense and stuff and you approach god and I'll do the same, and we'll see how this turns out, and he, and he specifies, he's like, everybody who does not support Cora and what they're doing, back away, and anyone who's with them on this, stay with them, and so Cora and his followers all go up, and then, boom, the earth opens up beneath them, and they are taken down quick into the pit, uh, End of story. Again, it's, it's, it's a very, very close parallel to what happens with Arfharazon. Now, in the context of the rebellion of Numenor, so again, you, you can see the parallels there, right? The kind of the, the presumption. We can, now it's, The presumption is different, of course, but you can see uh, some some very similar dynamics going on there. Um, but now, in the context of the rebellion of Numenor, what is interesting about what happens to Arfharazon, Brittany? He gets to keep. He gets to keep. He gets his his wish. He gets to remain alive until the end of the world, just like the elves in Valinor. Okay, I mean, under Valinor, (laughs) admittedly. But the altitude was a little bit different. Circumstances not quite so pleasant. But yes, it is, he gets a kind of ironic fulfillment of his wish. Right? How about that, Duncan?
1: That reminds me of, like, bad child that always wants, like, cake and steals it. And then, like... (laughs) The
0: principal comes in and like shoves that. <laughs> yeah. <Shut up. laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there is there is definitely an element of that. Um, on the spirit of you have never understood all along what you're really asking for, right? What you are there is a reason. As they've been trying to explain to the Numenorians all along, there is a reason why you're not immortal. There is a reason why we've been telling you, you can't come to Valinor. It's not for our own, you know, for our own benefit. It's not to keep from you that which we have. We're not keeping you down. This was for your own good, but you couldn't take this. So we're going to let you do what you want to do. This is, again, this is another uh, very persistent biblical theme as well. You see this happening in the Bible a lot. Um, Paul talks about it explicitly in Romans chapter one, where he talks about God's response to human sin, saying, "And God gave them over to the to to to, to their own desires." You know, if people say, "Hey, we want to sin, we want to do these things," and God's response is, "Okay, go ahead and do it," but I, you, I don't think you're going to enjoy it when it happens. Um, I don't think you're going to really like it when you get there, um, and that's exactly what our Pharaohs finds. Of course, the other thing—remember, their destiny. Human destiny is not for this world. They are deprived of the gift which they tried to reject, which they wanted to reject, which was death. Just as they were given a gift, Endor, the land of gift, and that gift is taken away. So in this one sense and in this special case, it is like the gift of death itself is taken away from them. And guess what? Turns out, that's not such a good thing, after all, as everyone was trying to warn them in the first place. Jordan?
1: Um, what i found the most significant once to brought this up is, on 281, first full paragraph, um, it, it, but these things come not in the tale of the journey of Numenor, which now all is told, and even the name of that land that perished. And, um, and men spoke to after not of Olena, nor of Endor, the gift that was taken away, nor of Numenor on the confines of the world, but the exiles on the shores of the sea, if they turned towards the west and the desires of their heart, spoke of mar that was overwhelmed in the waves, a color-based that and and the other on top. Numenor has not only ceased to exist, but has ceased to have ever existed. Yeah. In fact, in the little epilogue thing, they never mention Numenor. They say Unidai, and they say Valinor and all these places that are not Numenor, and they don't they, put the men that the exiles the, the, the Numenorians anymore. Yeah. are still yeah. Numenor, but
0: they're not Numenorians. Yeah, I mean, they, they do, um, people will still sometimes use that name to describe the people or the, the descendants of Numenor, but I agree, it is significant that the name is taken away um, because the implications of the name, right? Numenore, like uh, the Numenorians, the, the Dúnedain, it means the men of the West. Westerness is the way that uh, that name is rendered into English, In the Lord of the Rings. Um, That is, remember, you know, its position, halfway between Middle Earth and Valinor, though a little closer to Valinor. um, that land pushing the fringes of human happiness, of human bliss, of it's right up against the threshold of the amount of happiness and worldly satisfaction that humans can safely experience. That's not how they're going to be identified anymore. That name is going to cease to be used because they can no longer really be identified that way. And instead, they look back on it as the downfallen. And and as Atalanta? Yeah, Atalanta, I love that bit. Yeah. Um, And what's the name? What name is given to Tol Arisaia, Elvenholm? Avalone, did you notice? Yeah. Yeah, he connects both of these. Uh, this with explicitly by name with external mythologies. We're supposed—it's not an accident. We're supposed to be thinking of Atlantis uh, when we read about Numenor, and we're supposed to be thinking about Avalon when we hear about Elvenhome. That doesn't mean they're exactly the same, but we're supposed to be making those connections. It's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, actually kind of unusual uh, in Tolkien's corpus, at least his later corpus. He, he had originally. Um, in his original drafts, when he was first writing the Silmarillion materials way, way, way back prior to the, uh, to the release of the Lord of the Rings, uh, to the composition of the Lord of the Rings, he planned an explicit connection uh, between these places and places in our world. Um, Elvenholm was going to be uh, like England itself, but um, he, he moved away from that. Um, and so his published works show little reflection of any actual integration between uh, you know, modern geography uh, and these places. But this is one place where you can still see that kind, of a, that kind of, a, of, of a reference, that kind of a connection between these elven traditions and these human myths and legends uh, that we have developed since then. But there's one other big thing that Aluvatar did when he drowned Numenor. That nobody's talked about. It's the biggest thing, really, that he does. Chantelle, the world is sphere. Yeah, the whole world becomes spherical, and Valinor is removed from it, so that now no longer is Valinor even a part of the world. There's still a straight road, right, by which at times, well, I was about to say random people, but of course it's not actually random, right? Certain people, perhaps, uh, are able to get there. And the elves can still sail there? Right? I mean, you know, it's it's this this one road that that mortals almost never find. You know, cured in the shipwright has like easy pass. I mean he 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 knows you know the way, but most people don't. Sorry, Tolkien would hate that metaphor. But I'm <laughs> just imagining that. Whew. Anyway. Uh, uh, you know, he, 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 he's... On the, I was about to use an and I was about to you know, compare it to the commuter rail, also something that Tolkien would not approve of at all. But anyway, I mean, th- there is a direct connection. The elves that are in Middle-earth can still leave and can still return uh, to Valinor, but, by and large, uh, 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 people are not able to do. In other words, do you see what he's done? Think more about that. What are the implications of that? What does Eluvatar do? Yes, he punishes the Numenorians, Yes, he takes back the gifts. But... But what else has he done? Brittany? He removed that temptation to go over line. Yeah. Yes. He takes the ban of the Valar and makes it absolute. It is no longer just a prohibition. Don't go any further. It's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a stop to the going further than that line forever. Now, it's not even going to be an option. For, for human beings to set sail for valor with any hope anyway. Um, I'm going to remove it from the world entirely. So in ways that only Iluvatar could do, he renders permanent, physical, and literal the ban of the Valor. And that's that's pretty important. Notice what happens to the world. What is the significance in this context of the... the uh, need a noun sphericalization <laughs> oh but that's so indistinct i'm gonna go with spher spha- spha- spherifying S- spha- spher yeah oh well, I, I always no well, no anyway the making of it is sphere. i know isn't that boring oh well what's the significance of that what are the implications of that What happens now? The, the, the description of it. As a consequence of this, what do people find? How, how has he changed the world? I mean, not just physically. What, 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 what change has happened now to the world? What's different about men's experience of the world?
1: Is it less blissful to degree? them weaving that realm somehow take away their
0: essence from the world? I it I think we will see that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that he talks about uh, that Tolkien talks about in the last section in the Rings of Power in the Third Age is about the coming of the Dominion of Men and the re- the the reduction over time. Of the firstborn, they're in decline, uh, and 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 so the world does become, it seems, from this point, it does become less magical, less marvelous, and the dominion of men is preparing um, when there will be no more elves, um, and when there will be less magic in the world. Um, so yes, the state of decline. I, I don't think that we. We're quite safe in saying that that trend towards decline starts now and wasn't going before. Um, there seems to, I mean, I think you, you can see some indication of decline even in the first age. But, um, but I agree, I think that that is something that we can see happening. I was thinking of something uh, far shallower and more literal than that. That is, remember what he describes happening? So when after the fall of Numenor, when people set sail, what do they find? <laughs> Yes, now they just <laughs> they, 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 they seek to go to other lands and instead they just find themselves back where they started. That is, functionally, even if not literally, even if not geographically, functionally, the world is reduced. It's smaller now. Again, not literally smaller, not physically smaller. But it's, it's, it's contained now where it wasn't before. Think of how the world was, how the world worked before. All right, you had Middle Earth, which was quite large, in the middle, and then you had the Great Sea. We don't really know about the East. Nobody really goes into the East uh, further than Quivienin, right? So we don't have any idea. Uh, but in the West, we know about, right? You've got the continent which comes in, then you have the Great Sea and Valinor on the other side, and then over in the West of Valinor, right? We get Lorien and Mandos and Nienna's Place. And then, like the wall to the void. So, even though I mean there is sort of event, eventually a wall there, but there isn't. There's still sort of less of a sense of boundary there. Then you just you set out, you go, and you come back to exact. You end up in exactly the same place. It's, there's, there's no. You can't actually get anywhere. Um, you can't get anywhere different. Whereas to travel from the east of Middle Earth to Beleriand, to Valinor, to the halls of Mandos, to, you know, Nienna's back porch, you're really going somewhere different. I mean, there are substantive changes of where you're traveling. And then eventually, of course, if you go where you presumably wouldn't want to go, you know, off of Nienna's back porch and into the abyss, uh, <laughs> that's a serious change, right? That's where, you know, Morgoth gets shoved. So anyway, it's, the world is now circumscribed. And and Josh, this I think picks up on the point that you were making as well. It's now plain, right? Those places of wonder, those places, you know, Valinor itself, the halls of Mandos, they're now out of this world in some way. Um, Not out of this world in the sense in which the souls of men go out of the world when they die, but still the world is now made mundane. In this way. And that is an act less, it seems, of punishment than of quarantine. Again, it's, it is like another way in which Iluvatar makes the ban of the Valar absolute and permanent. I shall ensure that you are never again in a position like the Numenorians, where you're, you might be tempted to try to seize a bliss that is greater than you can handle. Now, that's not going to be possible. Never again will you have the, 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 the possibility, the option of achieving bliss beyond the capability of mortal people. That's taken entirely off the table. But there's still uh, there still remains that straight road, so uh, it's still open for the occasional catastrophe, but um, but, you know, not normally. Now, going to spend too much time on the rings of power in the third age mostly because we're going to be spending the rest of the semester talking about the rings of power in the third age mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of what goes on here is summary of course one thing to keep in mind this summary was written uh, after and published well after the writing of the lord of the rings i want to make sure that you have a sense one thing that's really difficult when you're dealing with tolkien's works is keeping in mind the difference between the chronology of the events and the chronology of when things were published and the chronology of when things were written, which are often very different. Um, Tolkien had the stories which become the Silmarillion. He had written many of them previously and had sort of connections among them. They were you know, designed to be different sort of stories from within the same world, but it was not really thoroughly consistently worked out. And when he wrote The Hobbit... The Hobbit was not explicitly connected. It contains references to some of those other things. There are references to Gondolin, for instance, in The Hobbit, which when it was, <laughs> when it was published in the late 30s, there were only like five human beings on the face of the earth who knew what that was. Um. And we'll talk about the effect of that when we read those in The Hobbit. But, um, but anyway, so so it's, it's clearly, it operates in the same world, but he has not really thoroughly integrated it. And there are some references to things in The Hobbit which are never going to get integrated, some of which do, because the version that you're going to be reading is actually the third edition of The Hobbit. Um, he revised it twice. Um, and the purpose of his revisions was to bring it more into line with uh, with The Lord of the Rings, which which had been published by that time. Uh, he revised it once after he'd written The Lord of the Rings, but before it w- came out, and again uh, after The Lord of the Rings was released. And again, his idea there was synthesizing it a little bit more. The summary that's written here is a later attempt to sort of integrate the whole thing, to show here's the trajectory of the whole story from the first Age stories that we've been reading in the Quintus Silmarillion uh, through some of the stories you know the, the, the story of, of, of Numenor in the second age you can see how where these characters came from right so we see the center you know who was primarily responsible for making the rings of power I mean Sauron but which of the elves Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor who is who we wouldn't I mean that name is mentioned in the Lord of the Rings when the Lord of the Rings was published you know Elrond at the Council of Elrond says you know talks about Celebrimbor and everyone's like, oh, okay. You know, take your word for that. But now we know who Celebrimbor was. Who's Celebrimbor? in Feanor's grandson, yes. Feanor's grandson, son of Curufin, who you'll remember was a jerk. Uh, <laughs> but there was only, th- there was, it, it, was, it was very brief. There was one sentence in passing uh, in the story of Beren and Luthien when Curufin uh, and Keligorm are kicked out of Nargothrond, which they had usurped. Uh, there is a brief reference to the fact that at that time, Celebrimbor uh, renounced the deeds of his father and stayed in Nargothrond. Um, So uh, he actually said, I publicly recognize that my dad is a jerk and I I don't want anything more to do with him. I'm going to stay and remain loyal and not follow the deeds of my father. So he's, uh, in one sense, an elf of morally questionable parentage, but at the same time, he inherited much of the skill of his grandfather. I mean, the, the rings of power are made by Fëanor's grandson, who has a lot of Fëanor's skill uh, in craftsmanship. So, you know, the, these are ways in which this section of the Silmarillion contextualizes the story of the Ring of Power, the story of the Rings of Power, and what happens later. Uh, you know, roots it for us in the stories of the First Age, which now we know, having read the Quintus Silmarillion, um, and also goes back over things that are said in the Hobbit and things that are said in the Lord of the Rings, and again, sort of puts them into the trajectory of this larger story. That's revision. Um, and re- revision that Tolkien was very carefully doing at this point to really try to make it all as consistent as it could be, given the fact that it grew up not at all consistently. Um, these stories emerged often very idiosyncratically. Um, and certainly the whole history of Middle Earth did not emerge in Tolkien's mind as a you know, consistent story from the Aino-Indolei you know, to Mount Doom uh, from day one. anything or, you know, Nothing like it. Um, and again, as I've said before, uh, Christopher Tolkien's series, The History of Middle-Earth, will give you, um, at times, some people find excruciating detail, uh, on exactly how that evolutionary process in Tolkien's thought and writing came about. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan, but I know not everyone reads them on the beach. But anyway, Um a few things there are some obvious parallels that we can see you know some of the kinds of recapitulations that we've talked about before um, that is there's some obvious similarities between what happens with Feanor and the Silmarils in Valinor especially after Morgoth is released and is you know going around whispering and telling lies um, you know, the, the parallels between that situation and Celebrimbor and the rings of power in Eregion with Sauron coming in and being like, hi, I'm a really nice guy. My name is the giver of gifts, right? Because I'm just so good that way uh, and generous um, and wise. Um, you'll remember, Galadriel and Elrond uh, and Gilgalad are onto him from the beginning. Um, but it's Celebrimbor uh, and his cohort in Eregion who believe him and who get sucked in. Why? What do we learn about the three rings? The three rings, the greatest of the, of the rings of power. Why is Celebrimbor making rings of power? What's his goal? There's, it, it, we should be, I think, thinking of the Silmarils his goal is like Theonor's goal in some way what's the power of the three rings what do they do Eve do you remember it makes things like really good where they are when
1: they're like active like it wasn't it didn't seem very very specific just that when you had one of the three rings and it was working things were going to work for you
0: yeah it's and like, no. yeah preservation particularly Where one of the three rings is active, that region is going to be blessed, it's going to be enriched, and it's going to be preserved. Um, The desire to keep unstained the things of the world. That is, with one of the three rings, you can create this this isolated pocket in which the decline is not happening in which, like, almost like the decline is reversed, or at least stayed. That's, that's what the three rings can do. And this is why he says, you know, later on, it became known among the elves uh, that, uh, you know, big su- surprise, surprise, Gladriel seems to have one, and Elrond seems to have one. Anyone who has visited <laughs> Lothlorien and, and Rivendell could probably make a shrewd guess at this. Right, the only real mystery... Uh, is where the third ring was, Narya, the one that Kirtan the shipwright had. Um, and, of course, the, the passage tells us that he gave it away. Um, and the reason that we don't find a third region of bliss and preservation and elven timelessness, why is there no third region? Because uh, Gandalf wants <laughs> Yeah, because Gandalf's got it and he never stays in one place. Exactly. He uses the power of the ring very differently, um, not to create a little, I was going to say a little bubble. That sounds um, a, little, a little more pejorative than I mean, um, but there is kind of an element of that. Uh, and remember this, when in the Fellowship of the Ring, people go into Rivendell and go into... Loughlory, and their description of that experience—it's like, wow, you just like cross the line, and wow, it's like we're in a different world here. Things are things are qualitatively different here in Florian than they are, you know, one mile to the west of here. Um, so, I mean, there there is something kind of I don't know, bubble-like about that. It's it it it's, it's, it has a limited effect um, because they both of the other two attach attach that power. Uh, their power and the power of their rings to a specific little region Uh, and Gandalf doesn't do so now we've talked about what tends to happen to evil people or perhaps another way of saying it is what evil does to you or what is the natural tendency of evil in Tolkien's world what happens to Sauron how does Sauron die and why is that important yeah. Yeah. Now he, he recovers from the Numenorian disaster, but he's limited thereafter. Right? And he can't change his form, and he can't you know dematerialize in the way that the Valar can and the Maiar. Um, why is he defeated? How and why is he defeated? I mean, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, when Frodo, you know, when the ring goes in the fire, as it's described, Cassie. The ring was described, and his soul in the ring. Yes, yes, it's his own fault, right? He, in order to make, in order to make the, the One Ring, the Ring of Power, the Ring that would, what was his goal? Why does he make this ring, his special ring? One to rule them all. He wants dominion. He wants power over all of the elves and over their all of their rings. But but their rings were pretty powerful. So his has to be really, really powerful. And so he pours his own essence, his own power into it. Remember we saw this happening with Morgoth, never quite in this focused a way You know, Morgoth's research and development was a little broader based. Right, he was spreading himself out and, you know, the the dragon's over here and, oh, you know, uh, know, he's secretly developing Dragon 2.0, you know, the winged dragon that he releases uh, at the end. It's like, you know, the the, the, the latest model that he has. And remember, you know, Glaurung goes out, you know, during one of the earlier battles and he's like, get back in here, Glaurung. You're a prototype for crying out loud. We're not done with you. (laughs) Uh, and Glaurung gets in trouble for this, right? So, I mean, he's but so he, he's doing that. He, you know, he's got the orcs and he's trying to improve the orcs, and he's got a, he's these other beasts and monsters that don't even get named. We see Karkaroth, you know, the great wolf. Then his little wolf experiment there. Like, can I create Uber Wolf who will be able to destroy? You know, who on the hound? So, <clears throat> in all of these things, he is dispersing his own strength. He's putting his own power and his own being into all of those creatures and lessening himself, such that. When the sun rises, he can't even take it out. You know, Arianne the Maya, who is driving the sun, Morgoth can't, can't just take her down. Uh, he, just, he seems to lack the power now at that point because he's dispersed himself so much. Sauron puts all his eggs in one basket. He, puts, he, takes, he disperses himself hugely into that ring so that that ring could have the power to dominate the other rings, which is why you destroy that ring... He doesn't die, of course. He's an immortal spirit, but you know, a, a huge percentage of his power is dispersed, such that he can never take form or do anything. He's just going to be a little wraith wandering around for the rest of eternity, who 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 doesn't even you know, who lacks the power to do much of anything anymore. Um, Fifty seconds. One last thing I want to draw your attention attention to and explain: um, the Istari, the wizards. Um, who they are and what they are. This is... <laughs> uh, that's Nick being called to something important again. Uh, the <laughs> I thought it was a, sm- a smoke alarm or something for a second. <clears throat> In 25 seconds. The Astari are... <laughs> the Astari are myar. They are sent over... To help with the fight against Sauron, the Valar don't come back. We don't get War of Wrath Part Two, the sequel. Right, this doesn't happen. But they don't totally ignore Middle Earth. They send emissaries. They send help in the form of these few Maiar who volunteer to come, and they are sent to Middle Earth. They are their relationship to their bodies is unusual. That is, they are actually incarnated. They are bound to, the, to their flesh. Um, it's not just like when the Maiar and the, and the Valar can you know, embody themselves and disembody themselves at will. Uh, remember Melian, when she marries Thingol, becomes bound to her flesh and bound uh, until Thingol is vo- voluntarily on her part. Um, and then when Thingol dies, she you know, can then dematerialize and leave. The Istari voluntarily bind themselves to Middle-earth and to the flesh, to, to, the, to the substance of Middle-earth, such that when we see, you know, Gandalf, of course, is the one that we will see interacting with most. When Gandalf is in physical danger, he is actually in physical danger. He is a Maiar, but he can't just be like, "All oh, I'm going to disembody and be out of here because I don't want to be eaten by wolves. He could, theoretically, be actually eaten by wolves. His spirit would then return to Valinor. Uh, but it would actually be an unpleasant experience for him and he, he is actually bound to a body so that he can die in a sense that is like the way that, that elves and, and humans can be killed. Um, so the wizards are Maiar, but they are, actually, they are actually given bodies in that way. This is a, a common cause of uh, misunderstanding when we're reading about the wizards. And that's it for today. Although I will return to make one or two more brief observations about the end of the section on the Third Age, I think we can go ahead and celebrate at this point. If you've been keeping up with your reading, then you are finished with the Silmarillion. Congratulations! Next time we will begin our whirlwind trip through the Hobbit, discussing chapters 1 through 4. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.